0: Our reading this morning comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. You're wondering about this wooden structure up here what it is we'll get to that and maybe you're wondering about the reading you heard, you heard earlier this morning this reading about not harvesting the edges of your fields we'll get to that don't worry and maybe you're really wondering about this this call to worship and the, and the powerful history but the particular piece around tithing Maybe you're sort of wondering about that as well. So let me frame this up for you this morning. Today is the final Sunday in our Courageous Conversations sermon series. We've spent the whole, all of January, talking about, thinking about, looking at different kinds of courageous conversations. And today we're talking about money and generosity. How money is a tool to make our values come alive in the world and how generosity is a spiritual practice. It's good, meaty stuff stuff I love and uh, think a lot about. Even so, I am aware, I am aware and I recognize that death, sex, and money are three of the biggest emotionally charged topics that we as human beings deal with. Those are the things, if we're honest with ourselves, that we spend the most time thinking about and worrying about and struggling to find ways to talk about. Death, sex, and money, right? Be honest now. Be honest now. So we're pulling out all the stops this morning, and here's what I mean. Today we're talking about money, and next Sunday we're launching our four-part sermon series, Sex and Spirit. So put on your crash helmets, folks, buckle up the seatbelts, get ready for the ride. Here we go. Today is money, moolah, (laughs) dinero. The Benjamins, you remember that scene from, uh, from uh, uh, what's that movie with Tom Cruise? He's like, show me the money, show me the money. What's that movie called? Somebody help me out here. Jerry Maguire, thank you, right. Money, moolah, dinero, the Benjamins, some green. Let me do an informal survey here, and you don't have to raise your hands when I ask these questions, but as I was writing this sermon and thinking about my own relationship with money and how that intersects with my spiritual life, here are just some things that stirred up for me, and so I want to put these questions out there. You don't have to raise your hand. You could nod your head or just sit there and check out, see what your spouse or partner's doing and then figure out if you want to put your hand up or not. How many of you have difficulty talking about Money, either with a partner or anyone, for that matter. All right. Yeah, some nodding of heads. How many of you get really uncomfortable with those money questions? You heard a couple of them framed up in the call to worship, like, how much do you make? Ooh, that's not polite to ask in, like, in company. Uh, how much do you spend? How much do you save? You're not, you, oh, maybe, maybe some of you like getting those questions. I don't know. You're like, well, here's, let me tell you. How... Here's another question. How many of you would like to have a better relationship with money? Yeah, yeah, some hands, some nodding. How many of you understand your relationship with money to be, in essence, a spiritual matter? How many of you think about your relationship with money in a spiritual framework? Yeah, a bunch of you. There's some hands. But nonetheless, you find yourselves now in the pews getting a little bit nervous, knowing you're about to sit through a whole money sermon. You know it's part of your spiritual life, but there's a whole sermon coming up. I'll be gentle. I'll be gentle. And I'll be real. I want to start the conversation this morning by going back to the edge of the field. When you reap the harvest of the land of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of the field, or gather the gleanings. Those are the leftovers. You shall not gather the gleanings of the harvest, nor reap to the very edges of your land. Leave those items for the poor and the immigrant. These instructions are over 2,000 years old, and they are essentially a commandment to leave The edge of your field untouched. Don't harvest it. Don't go pick the stuff there. Just leave it alone. Leave the wheat and the grain and the grapes and the olives, whatever is there, leave that there. Leave it there for the men and the women and the children, those who do not have land. Now, many of you have heard me tell you before that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there are dozens and dozens of reminders in these passages to care for the stranger, to to be mindful of, of the foreigner, of the immigrant, to extend hospitality to them, to care for those without power and wealth. So this commandment is in that same spirit. It says, for those folks who don't have land, you need to leave the edges of your field unharvested so they have sustenance, they have resources, they have food. And it points to something deeper as well. In asking us to leave the edges of our fields unharvested, it reminds us of something much deeper. And I think it is this What the land produces isn't really ours anyway. In fact, the land itself doesn't even really belong to us. We might plant the seeds, but we didn't make the seeds. Forces larger than us cause the plants to sprout and to grow, cause the rain to fall. The food is a gift. The land is a gift. And we are instructed to leave the edges of the field unharvested, not to take it all for ourselves, to leave some for others. I read that. I read that as a deep spiritual reminder that none of it, none of this, our clothes, our stuff, our things, none of it, the land what it produces, none of it really belongs to us. We are stewards of it, we are caretakers of it, it's not all for us, it's to be shared. How many of you are farmers? Right, a couple, right, a couple. Or you had parents, maybe your grandparents, that were farmers. But times have changed, right? There's maybe three or four hands that I saw go up. So I wonder, as I was thinking through this sermon, wondering, okay, how well does this image and harvesting and not harvesting, how well does that fit into your world view? <laughs> like you're not out in the field, most of you, farming. So I realize on some level, that's a totally foreign concept, maybe, But you get my point, right? You understand what I'm pointing to here. Whatever your field is, whatever you produce, it's not just for you alone. You didn't just do it by yourself. And in many ways, this is where the idea of tithing comes from. As you heard in our call to worship this morning, tithing is a way to support those in need. In the black church, it was an obligation, it was a lifeline for that community. And it inspires me to hear about a church that was central, was a central force in the community that really shaped and inspired people and and formed them in deep ways. Tithing or giving away 10% of your income, that's a practice, that is a practice, a spiritual practice that acknowledges that we are in a web of connection, that we are utterly dependent on other people most of our lives probably all of our lives. So giving, whether it's 10% or whatever it is, is a way to recognize that underlying spiritual reality that we depend on and are dependent on other people. Let me push this a step further here. I want to borrow words from Khalil Gibran, who says it this way. To give is to live. To withhold is to perish. To give is to live. To withhold is to perish. Run that on the screen of your own life. To give is to live. To withhold is to perish. Isn't it true, friends, that when we give our, our time, when we give our love, when we give our attention, when we give our resources, when we give money, whatever it might be, there is a way that we start to feel alive in deeper relationship with whoever is in front of us or with the whole of the universe. To give is to live. To withhold is to perish. To give is to live. And giving disrupts the cultural narrative we have around money. And you probably know this narrative, but giving in that spiritual practice sort of way completely upends the cultural narrative we have around money. Here's what that narrative goes like. I know that you know this. I'll just do a few examples. The narrative goes like this. I give Comcast some money and I have internet and cable TV in my house. I give the Y some money and I get to go sweat on their machines, right? I give Apple some money and I get an iPhone. It goes on. But giving as a spiritual practice doesn't fit into that equation. It doesn't fit into that, here's the chunk of money I give, here's what I expect to get back in concrete concrete terms. Giving as a spiritual practice is a way to recognize the gifts that you've been given in your life, to see those blessings, and then to give back, to live. To withhold is a kind of spiritual death. To withhold is to perish. When we are stingy with our love, with our affection, with our attention, something in us dies. To give is to live. We practice this as a faith community. This is what our day of service is about. It is about giving back to the community. This is why we give away the majority of our offering every Sunday. It is a way to practice tithing, in essence, to the community, a way to give so that we might live more deep lives. And it recognizes that we are wrapped up in a web of connection as well. This is the life, this life of giving and receiving and growing that this church invites us into. And this is why Reverend Jen and I and our families have increased our giving to this place. We've increased our giving up to 5% of our income in addition to our other giving because it feels really good. And I know some of you give at that level and give beyond that level. But I suspect for many of you, I really imagine for many of you, 5% is talking about quantum mechanics. It's such a far leap from, from where you are in your giving that it feels impossible. It feels like there's no way I could do that. And so I want to share with you a little bit of the journey that my family went on. And I will tell you honestly, at first, it did feel impossible. 5%, half of a tithe, that just felt impossible. But we said, this is where we want to be. There's something significant about this. This is how we'd like to stretch, and here's how we're going to get there. And we also looked around at our lives and said, here are the things that we have been blessed with in our lives, and these are the ways we want to give back, and this is the journey we want to be on. And so we arrived there. We didn't do it overnight. It wasn't like one day we woke up and said, let's do 5% of our income and just did that. It took time. It took stretching. It took intentionality about life choices, about being honest about the resources we had and how those were making our values come alive in the world. And now, I will tell you, friends, it makes me feel alive to support this place, something that really, truly, deeply matters in my life. Because here's the honest, honest truth for me. This Faith, this community, it saves me. I don't mean it saves me from hell. I mean it saves me in the sense that it helps me be a more full person, a more full human being. Because I'm in relationship with you, I am challenged and invited to grow. I watch you grow. I watch you deepen your spiritual practices. Those things change me save me. In this place, I am called to be my best self. I believe that's why you're here, because there's a sense of a fullness of what it means to be a person that you can achieve in this place. And in this place, I'm called beyond the narrow confines of my own individual needs and wants. This place saves me. Let me share a story with you from the author, Parker Palmer. Some of you have probably heard this story before. He writes that there used to be a time when the farmers of the Great Plains, at the first sign of a blizzard, they would run a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn. These farmers had all heard stories, they probably even knew people who had got lost on the way from the back door to the barn and then somehow wandered away and then froze and died in these big sweeping blizzards on the plains. And again, some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about here. You may have had parents or grandparents that actually did this. But for a lot of us, this is re- removed from real-life experience. We don't have a rope from our door to the garage. That would be the closest analogy. We just, it's like, r- getting lost in a blizzard? What? But Parker Palmer takes that essential image, the blizzard, a whiteout, and he says, think about it this way. The reality is, in our world today, we are dealing with another sort of blizzard. It's a blizzard without snow, but it's just as blinding. It's a blizzard of physical and spiritual violence, of racism and fear, greed, deceit, and indifference to the suffering of others. It's a blizzard of hopelessness, of addiction, of depression, where people are lost in the darkness that is their own lives. On the surface, on the surface, things seem fine, but underneath, in our lives, there's a whiteout. Don't we all know, or aren't we the people who are lost in this modern-day blizzard, trying to find a way home? It makes me think about that lifeline, that rope between the back door and the barn door, that rope that helps us find our way home. And I will tell you, for me, this church is like that rope. It is that lifeline. It is a lifeline that calls me back to life, to possibility, to being the best person I can be. And I wonder, how many of you, when you first came into this place, sat in these pews and wept? or felt this incredible sense of having come home, felt relief, felt a sense of having arrived in a place where all of you could show up. I'm curious, how many of you, when you first came here, had something like that experience? A number of you. I talk to you all the time. You tell me. I couldn't believe it. I I hated church. I didn't think church was for me. I grew up this or that or whatever. And I said, I'm going to give it one more shot. And I showed up here, and I realized this was a place that I could really be. There's a sense that you would come home. So this church, as a lifeline, helps us catch sight of our connection to something larger and reminds us that we can survive whatever blizzard we're in without losing our way. This faith community helps us find our way home. It helps us give and receive and grow into love's people. It reminds us in real, concrete ways that we are held by a love that will not let us go. We are held in a web of life. And that's what this thing is right here. This thing right here was built by two of our Pledge team members, the two guys who stood up earlier, Rich Yeager and David Paniani. This is what they are calling the web of connection. And so part of what we're inviting you into this year as our as our pledge campaign kicks off, is when you fill out your pledge, sometime between now and February 24th, that you will, this will be downstairs, that you will come here with your family and attach a piece of yarn, here's all the yarn, from one of these threads down to another thread. And I imagine that someone might come up here, someone who, in our faith community, struggles with grief or Or loneliness, or depression, and they will come up here, and that person will put a thread up here because this church provided solace and comfort for them. They joined a grief support group, or whatever it might be. I like to imagine that members of our choir, who bless us every Sunday with incredible music that takes us and touches us, they will come up here and put a thread on this web. Of connection after they make their financial commitment to the church. I like to imagine a family will come up here. Maybe one of the families of our chalice lighters, these children that are with us on Sunday morning, they will come up here and add their thread because this faith community holds them and their children. It is a countercultural message that says it doesn't matter if you have two moms or two dads, this place welcomes you as you are. I like to imagine that a number of you will put threads up on this web of connection because of the racial justice work we've started, the, the thrill that has brought you as your faith community starts to take seriously this spiritual imperative to look at race and have a conversation. I like to imagine that some of our coming-of-age mentors, the men and women who are with our 14, 15-year-olds as their mentors will put a thread on this web of connection. I like to imagine that some of those 14 and 15-year-olds will will put a web, a a thread on this web of connection. I like to imagine our small group leaders and the people who are in our small groups putting threads on this web of connection, and together we weave something remarkable. But the web is not yet built that is, that is our work. And we will build it during this pledge drive between now and February 24th. So after you fill out your pledge card, not today, but sometime during the week or the coming weeks, you and your family, whoever is with you, will put a thread on this web of connection. It is a ritualized way. It's a ritualized way to acknowledge the deeper reality, which is we are woven together together In this life, we do not get through life without the love and care and affection of those around us and those in this faith community. I like to imagine the hands at these habitat work sites coming up here and putting a thread on, or the hands that knit our prayer shawls that go to members who have lost a loved one or are struggling. I like to imagine the hands that packed all these care packages yesterday at our day of service, putting a thread up on this web. What do you imagine? What story, what story will you tell yourself when you put your web thread on the web? What's clear to me is that together we are weaving something powerful and life-changing in this place. We are living into the vision of our strategic plan of who we are called to be as a faith community. And so part of what that looks like, I just want to point to a few things, part of what that looks like this next year is building a house with Habitat for Humanity. Not just working on it for a day, not just working on it for a week. We're talking about laying the foundation... Building the walls, putting on the curtains, doing the landscaping, partnering with this family, that is a commitment we are looking at and will take on as a faith community in this next year. We're talking about giving away even more of our offering, moving toward 100% every Sunday, our way, in essence, to tithe back to the community. This year and next year, we will deepen our work around racial justice. We're exploring the possibilities of adding another service with religious education so that we can better serve our children, youth, and adults. And it is our gifts, our generosity, that make these things happen. Here's what I know. Most of us, for most of our lives, as adults now, we have been tended to and cared for by institutions. And it is time for us to take care of this place. I also know that there is incredible capacity here. And I know how much can happen from an ask. So I'm asking you to have the money conversation with yourself or with your partner. I'm asking you to stretch this year, to take a step toward giving 5% of your income. And if that seems impossible, if you're pledging 1% or 2%, stretch to that 2 or 3%. Discover what stretch you can make. You know your life. You know your finances. Discover what stretch you can make and then commit to it. Think of this, friends, think of this as a big, bold experiment. A way to give so that you might live. I'm asking you to put this faith community at the center of your life and make it first in your giving. After all, does Comcast... Does the why, does Apple, care about your spiritual development and journey? I'm just saying. I don't even think there's an app. Maybe there's a meditation app on the iPhone. But that's not Apple. Do those places Walk with you? Do they marry you and bury you and those you love and check in with you and walk with you through life's ups and downs? We do that with one another. We do that together here in our religious education and our small groups in worship Sunday after Sunday. And my dream, friends, is that we make First Universalist the strongest lifeline it can be for our community, for ourselves, for our families. And for all those who are lost in that blizzard, wanting to find their way home. So let us be bold. Let us be bold in our giving so that we know in our bones this truth. From you I receive, to you I give. Together we share, and from this we live. May it be so, and amen.